Jesus says to his disciples in Luke chapter 6, verse 46, he says, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? It is possible to call Jesus Lord, but not have him as your Lord. And I wonder if that's the case for some of you here today. We've just sung songs about every knee shall bow, Jesus has been exalted to the highest place. It's so easy to roll off your tongue. Jesus is Lord. But is he your Lord? Is he your Lord, your King? No doubt for some of you who claim Jesus as your Lord, your lives tell a different story. For some of you, your actions show that Jesus isn't Lord. Maybe something else is your Lord. Maybe it's your career. Maybe it's your family. Maybe it's your own pleasure. We can take things that in and of themselves are good, but they take the place of God. You might call Jesus your Lord, you might even be in a Bible study group and you discuss with other people what it means to obey him, but when the rubber hits the road and you're called to do something hard, you do what's comfortable for you. And look, it's easy, isn't it? We make an excuse that that sounds good, I need to look after my family or I don't have time for that, but you know in your heart it's just another compromise You're doing what you want. Jesus says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? So I want to ask you right up front this morning, what is it that you live for? What motivates your every decision in life? What motivates how you spent your time last week? Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Don't play games with Jesus. Don't call him your Lord when he's not your Lord. You can fool other people. You might be able to fool yourself, but you can't fool Jesus. King Jesus doesn't take orders from us. He gives them. Now, that's what today's passage is about in 1 Samuel 4. It's about how disastrous it is when we get that the wrong way around. Because in today's passage... The nation of Israel want God's blessing without having to do what he says. So rather than coming to God and seeking what he wants, they try and manipulate God into giving them what they want. And as we will read, it is a disaster. And it's a a warning for us all, isn't it? Nothing is more dangerous than playing games with God. Let's pick it up in 1 Samuel chapter 4 at the start. 
Now, it talks about the Israelites and the Philistines. The Israelites are God's people. We've been hearing about them the last few weeks. The Philistines are their enemies. And 1 Samuel 4 begins with the Israelite army and the Philistine army having a battle. But the Israelites lose. 4,000 men are killed. That's what happens in verse 1. Now, the Israelites went out to fight against the Philistines. The Israelites camped at Ebenezer and the Philistines at Aphek. The Philistines deployed their forces to meet Israel. And as the battle spread, Israel was defeated by the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 of them on the battlefield. So it's a defeat for the nation of Israel. 4,000, it sounds like a lot, but it's nothing compared to what happens later in the chapter. In response to their loss, the Israelites decide to take the Ark of the Covenant into battle with them. Verse 3. When the soldiers returned to camp, the elders of Israel asked, Why did the Lord bring defeat upon us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the Ark of the Lord's Covenant from Shiloh so that it may go with us and save us from the hands of our enemies. Now, when you lose a fight, it's a good thing to ask why, isn't it? If you've ever been in any kind of sporting team and you've lost a game, you ask, what did we do wrong? Could we have played better? Why did we lose? That's what happens here. The elders of Israel ask the question, why did we lose? Verse 3, why did the Lord bring defeat upon us today before the Philistines? Now, there's something good going on there. They have realised that when there's a battle between two nations, it's not just the biggest army that wins, God decides the outcome. And they've recognised that, haven't they? Why did the Lord, not the Philistines, why did the Lord bring defeat on us today? So they've asked the right question and they're calling God their Lord, but they come up with completely the wrong answer. Because they haven't actually asked God what he wants here, they should be asking him, but they come up with their own solution. Now, this is all made really obvious by what came at the very start of this chapter. Look at how um, verse 1 actually was continuing on from the last chapter. Did you notice that? The very start of 1 Samuel 4.1. And Samuel's word came to all Israel. Now, this is reminding us of what we saw two weeks ago now. How exciting it was in chapter 3 after a period of God not speaking, that God was now speaking with his people. He raised up the prophet Samuel and through Samuel, God's word was coming to all of Israel. So you would expect that when the Israelite elders want an answer to the question, why did God bring defeat on us? The person they should be talking to is Samuel. They should be doing like they did all through the book of Judges, which is coming to God and saying, why did we lose? But it's the complete opposite. In fact, Samuel now completely disappears for the next three chapters while Israel do not listen to the voice of God. They're not interested in listening to God until chapter 7 when Samuel does appear back on the scene and when he appears, he makes it very clear as to why Israel were defeated. I don't normally like reading ahead, but have a little skip over to 1 Samuel chapter 7 verse 3. Here is what Israel should have done right now at this point. 1 Samuel 7, 3. And Samuel said to the whole house of Israel, 
if you are returning to the Lord with all your hearts, then rid yourselves of the foreign gods and the Ashereths and commit yourself to the Lord and serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. That's the answer they would have got if they went to God. That's the right answer. There's a very clear reason why Israel have been defeated. But they don't want to turn back to God yet. They like the idea of having God on their side, but they don't want him as their Lord. So rather than coming to God and listening to him, they come up with their own idea. They decide to take the Ark of the Covenant into battle with them like a good luck charm so that they'll win. Verse 3, when the soldiers returned to camp, the elders of Israel asked, why did the Lord bring defeat on us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the Ark of the Lord's Covenant from Shiloh so that it may go with us and save us from the hands of our enemies. Now, when you understand what the Ark of the Covenant is, you realise what an insult this action is to God. The Ark of the Covenant was built way back when the um, Israelites were rescued from Egypt. It's a box. That's what Ark means, box. It's a bit bigger than a coffin. It's kind of like a huge esky or a fridge lying on its side. And inside this box was the Ten Commandments. That's what covenant means, promise, Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments were, of course, where God told his people how they were to live. So Ark of the Covenant is just the box with the commandments in it. It is a symbol of God's presence with his people. It is a symbol of their obedience to him. So, for example... Back in Joshua, just, uh, you know, we've got 1 Samuel, then we've got Judges just before that in Joshua. When God led his people into the promised land, he told them to march with the Ark of the Covenant in front of them. It was a symbol to show that he was leading them into the promised land. And when they conquered the city of Jericho, if you think about that, God told them to march with the Ark of the Covenant in front of them to show that he was leading them. So this is not the first time that the Israelites have taken the Ark of the Covenant into battle. The big difference, though, is that every other time they did it because God told them to. And the Ark was the sign of his presence and their obedience. This time, it's their idea. It used to be a sign of God leading them into battle. Now it's a sign of them trying to lead God into battle. They think that if they have the Ark of the Covenant, God will have to be with them. It's become like a four-leaf clover. They think they have the ultimate good luck charm. They think that they can control God. They think they've got God on a leash. They can just lead him into battle and they will win. They want God to save them. They just don't want to listen to what he says. How do you think that's going to work out for them? How do you think the God of the universe feels when people attempt to manipulate him to get what they want? Well, we get a picture of how stupid this is as we read on in verse 4. Have a look at verse 4 there. So the people sent men to Shiloh and they brought back the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord Almighty who is enthroned between the cherubim. Let's just pause and look at the way the writer is describing that. He's called the Lord Almighty. 
Almighty literally means Lord of the armies, Lord of the battle. The writer of 1 Samuel has deliberately switched here from calling him Lord to Lord Almighty to remind us of who they're playing with here. Notice in verse 4, he also says that God is enthroned between the cherubim. They are the angels on top of the ark, the carvings. The language that he's using, he sits enthroned. It's the language of a king on a throne. And yet they are marching God into battle like a dog on a leash. Worse still, look at the second half of verse 4. Just look at the contrast here. And Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. Marching right alongside the Ark of God are these two evil, corrupt priests that we heard about in two, who God has already announced judgment on, who were sleeping with prostitutes and mucking up the offerings of the people. God's people are marching into battle, carrying God's box as a good luck charm, and walking beside it are the corrupt priests who are a very sign of their disobedience. How do you think that's going to work out for them? The Israelites don't think there's a problem. In fact, they get excited about the ark. Verse 5, they give a huge shout because they have the ark of the Lord. In verse 7, the Philistines hear the shout and they get scared. It seems that the the Philistines have more fear of God than the Israelites do. Look at verse 7. The Philistines were afraid. A God has come into the camp, they said. We're in trouble. Nothing like this has happened before. The Philistines get it. The God of Israel is powerful. They should be scared of him. But God's people don't get it. They don't fear God at all. Well, it all comes to the climax in verse 10. We get the battle. And it is a disaster. It couldn't go worse for Israel. Verse 10. So the Philistines fought. And the Israelites were defeated. And every man fled to his tent. The slaughter was very great. Israel lost 30,000 foot soldiers. The ark of God was captured. And Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, died. After all that build up, the fight is described in just two verses. It is a complete knockout. Israel are flattened. It's like it's over in the first round. 30,000 Israelites die. Hophni and Phinehas die. The Ark of God is captured. Now, as a reader, you might think that if the Ark of God has been captured, God's been defeated or God is powerless. Nothing could be further from the truth. God is completely in control here. And that is what the second half of chapter 4 is about. The battle is over, but we still have another half a chapter to make sure that we don't miss why this happened. God has let the ark be captured to show that he is walking away from Israel. So great is their sin. Now, God already gave them warnings back in the previous chapters. God warned Eli about the death of Hophni and Phinehas twice. Eli's afraid of what was going to happen before he even gets the news about the ark. 
He's not just afraid of his sons, though. He's afraid for everything. He knew this was a bad idea. You don't play games with God. Look at verse 12. Eli's waiting for news from the battle. He knows it's going to be bad before he gets it, verse 12. That same day, a Benjaminite ran from the battle line and went to Shiloh, his clothes torn and dust on his head. When he arrived, there was Eli sitting on his chair by the side of the road, watching because his heart feared for the ark of the Lord. He knew what was coming. And when he's told the news of the battle, I want you to notice what's important to him. Which piece of information brings him the most grief? Is it the 30,000 Israelites who died? Is it his own sons who died? Or is it the capturing of the ark? Have a look. Verse 17. The man who brought the news replied, Israel fled before the Philistines and the army has suffered heavy losses. Also your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead. And the ark of God has been captured. When he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell backwards off his chair by the side of the gate. His neck was broken and he died. For he was an old man and heavy. He had led Israel for 40 years. Seems Eli can cope with the news of the 30,000 Israelites dying in battle. He can cope with the news of his sons. He knew that was coming. But when he hears that the ark of God is gone, it kills him. Because the ark of the covenant was the sign of God's presence. God has abandoned them. And to make sure we don't miss how devastating this is, in the last few verses of this chapter, what might normally be good news, the birth of Eli's grandson, actually becomes cursed news by the name that he's given. Let's pick it up in verse 19. His daughter-in-law, the wife of Phinehas, was pregnant and near the time of delivery. When she heard the news that the ark of God had been captured and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she went into labour and gave birth, but was overcome by her labour pains. As she was dying, the woman attending her said, Don't despair. You have given birth to a son. But she did not respond or pay any attention. She named the boy Ichabod, saying, the glory has departed from Israel. That's what Ichabod means, no glory. The glory has departed from Israel because of the capture of the ark and the deaths of her father-in-law and her husband. She said, the glory has departed from Israel for the ark of God has been captured. This is the darkest ending that you could think of for this chapter. When this, this baby is born with no mother, no father, no grandfather, and no God in Israel. Hophni's dead, Phinehas is dead, Phinehas's wife is dead, Eli is dead, 30,000 Israelites are dead, the ark is gone, and God has abandoned Israel. 
God who led them out and has been leading them ever since the Exodus, his presence with them symbolic in the ark, he's gone. If God is going to turn, if Israel are going to turn their backs on God, he's going to turn his back on them. Put all that together and it could not be clearer how dangerous it is to manipulate God. God is not there to be controlled. God sets the agenda, not us. You can't disobey God and then think that you'll be okay because you hold on to some religious practice or some good luck charm that you make up. Now, if you're here this morning and you are not yet a follower of Jesus, I hope, if nothing else, I hope that you can see clearly from this passage that when we come to God, we need to come to God on his terms. God's not someone you can play games with. You can't just live your life how you want and then grab onto some religious charm like baptism or going to church or whatever it might be and try and win God's favour. You can't ignore God and then send up a desperate prayer when things are in trouble like some good luck charm and expect him to rescue you like a genie. If there's one lesson from this chapter, it is that you need to come to God on his terms. And his terms are very clear. God says to us later on in the Bible that if we want to come to him, we come through his son, Jesus. God says that the way for us to come to him is to come to Jesus and place our lives in his hands, to make Jesus our Lord, to ask Jesus to forgive us. And wonderfully, God says that if we do that, if we come to him on his terms, he promises that we will be forgiven. He promises that he will warmly welcome us into his family, but the point is you need to do it his way. And if you're here this morning and you know that you haven't done that yet, I want to challenge you to be honest and open with yourself before God. You might be new to church this morning or you might have been coming along for years. But if you want to find out what God requires of you, pick up the Bible, open to one of the Gospels about Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke or John, and read it with the question, what does God require of me? Read it with the attitude, I want to come to God on his terms. Listen to him. Don't make up your own idea of what God wants. But if you're here today and you are a follower of Jesus, today's passage is a great challenge for us too, isn't it? Where we humbly and honestly need to reflect on our own lives. Jesus says, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? King Jesus doesn't take orders from us. He gives them. Is he your Lord? Are you coming to Jesus and letting him set the agenda for your life? Or are you taking your agenda, your plans, and asking Jesus to jump on board with you? 
When you became a follower of Jesus, did you take the agenda for your life and screw it up and throw it in the bin and say to Jesus, what is it that you want me to do? Or have you taken your agenda for your family or for your career and all you're doing is asking Jesus to, get, to give you what you want and nothing's changed? Because sadly, that's what a lot of so-called Christians do. They bring to God the to-do list for their life and they expect God to help them finish it off as if God is their personal assistant. It's not too different to what the nation of Israel did in Samuel's day. Don't let that be you. Don't play games with Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word to us. There are parts of it that are warmly encouraging And there are parts of it that are a rebuke. And Father, we pray that by your spirit, you would help us to submit every area of our life to Jesus. Give us the humility to admit where we haven't done that. Give us the courage to confess to you. Please help our repentance to be genuine. And by your spirit, please change us so that we may live with Jesus as our Lord. Amen.